Hello, welcome to our new episode about translating dialects and non-standard elements of speech. This is one of the thorniest issues in translation, and sometimes it can prove impossible to find a reasonable solution. Before we get into defining what dialect is, I think we promised you last time that Joseph will do a rendition of Southern dialect, <laughs> kind of give us a, a real representation. We can start a discussion after that. Okay, Joseph? yeah. Yeah, some promises uh, perhaps are better not kept, but let's do this one. I, I've chosen a, a passage from uh, the great Southern writer Flannery O'Connor. And just so people know, I, I probably don't sound that Southern right now, but born in... Uh, raised in South Carolina. And when I went up to uh, college up outside Philadelphia, I opened my mouth. I thought I didn't have an accent. And uh, as soon as I opened my mouth, people laughed at me and uh, it slowly went away. But uh, I think I've still got it in me. So this is from Flannery O'Connor's short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. I know you're a good man, she said desperately. You're not a bit common. No, I ain't a good man, the misfit said after a second, as if he'd considered her statement carefully. But I ain't the worst in the world, neither. My daddy said I was a different breed of dog from my brothers and sisters. You know, daddy said, it's some that can live their whole life out without asking about it, and it's others has to know why it is, and this boy's one of the latters. He's going to be into everything. Sounds like a true southerner. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I have a strange confession to make, actually, for a linguist who is interested in sociocultural aspects of language. I love dialects, of course, but I don't like reading them. You know, when you hear it, you hear the rhythm, how it sounds, and you have a wealth of information about the person and the region, but it loses so much when it's represented on paper, at least in my view. Perhaps that has to do with my growing up in Egypt, and, you know, in Arabic, there is not a strong tradition of representing dialect in writing. Uh, that is not to say that writers don't use dialects. They do, but there is standard Arabic, and you are supposed to use it in writing, even in dialogue. And even the most famous Egyptian writer, Nagib Mahfouz, the Nobel Prize laureate, he's famous also for not writing in Egyptian vernacular, even though his subjects are uniquely Egyptian, steeped in Egyptian history and culture. I remember I was in high school and I read a novel that was written in, in Egyptian dialect, not the standard Arabic that I'm used to, and I thought that was crazy. I liked it after that, but at the beginning, I thought it's a misrepresentation. Why do writers resort to dialects in their representations? Before we talk about how translators handle dialects, it gives authenticity to the representation, gives more texture to the character, more nuance to the setting. It makes a direct appeal to the feelings of those who are familiar with the dialect. So it is important. Language variation, of course, is the norm. It's not the exception. And if writers want to be authentic, they need to more or less capture some of this variation. Well, I guess this is a, a, a real problem uh, in translation because you are not just going from language to language, but because of culture to culture and different cultures have different approaches to dialect, different dialects within them. And these dialects, of course, uh, have certain significances such as, you know, socioeconomic and in American literature and in Southern literature, right, there's always uh, an overlay with race as well. Uh, and to try and capture that into another language in another culture that doesn't have those uh, distinctions, right, that represents a real challenge to a, a translator. Or have those distinctions, but in a different way. They map differently. 
in a different culture and a different language. So, of course, we'll talk about the challenges of translating dialects and non-standard speeches. But first, I think it's important to define what a dialect is, as opposed to language or standard language. Dialect, of course, is often used to mean less than language or less than the standard language. But it is a variety of language that is sometimes stigmatized, even though it might be the main speech available to the speaker of the language. I don't know if you know about this quip. A language is a dialect with an army and a navy. <laughs> uh, it's not entirely true, but there is an element of truth there. There is a strong connection between what is considered standard language and power. Is there a, a strict definition or are there definitions that uh, distinguish carefully between dialect and, say, a language variety or are those synonyms? Yeah, that's a good question. There are some structural linguistic criteria that we follow, but they are not exact science. Any standard language is essentially a dialect, a social dialect, a prestigious social dialect that has been selected, accepted, propagated, and codified by means of dictionaries, grammar books, usage manuals. It has to come from somewhere, be it London, Paris, Cairo, because it acquires power, it loses its regional association, becomes super-regional. So in this sense, any standard language is a dialect. Basic criterion is mutual comprehension or mutual comprehensibility. If two varieties of language are mutually comprehensible, they are considered dialects of the same language. And when we talk about mutual comprehensibility, uh, and this is maybe also an additional uh, issue with translating dialect because there's also there's a phonological aspect, right? So I read the Flannery O'Connor with a, a different sound versus the appearance on uh, the written page. And in, in some ways, like if you read a Faulkner, there's maybe hints of it. Mostly, you know, African American characters uh, are represented speaking a, a variety of English, whereas the, many of the Southerners, at least on the page it looks like standard English. That depends on the purpose of the writer, what they consider mainstream versus what is marked. Right, and it strikes me that it really is about a, a kind of characterization. And depending, again, on the, the context, the cultural context, it can be a marker of lack of educational status or high educational status, uh, social status, economic status, all those types. Uh, so, yeah, there are many variables that condition the use of dialect. To simplify, we could talk about dialects in three ways. There is a socioeconomic dialect, as you mentioned, that's class and education. There is regional dialect, that's geographical location. Let's say Southern English, New York English, Pittsburghese, and so on. <laughs> and uh, maybe something called idiolect, a personal way of speaking. We're not going to talk about this one mainly interested in the more general constructs of socioeconomic variation and regional variation. So in the uh, English language, uh, some writers are associated with representing dialects in their novels. So Emily Pronte, uh, Thomas Hardy in the British context, the American context, Zora Neale Hurston, their eyes were watching God. There are many studies about the representation of dialects in this particular novel. It's funny, though, it seems in the American context, we primarily think of Southern writers who do this or people writing about Southern issues. There are people who represent, say, uh, certain New York forms of speech, varieties of speech. Or New England, Boston. and uh, Right, the Boston Brahmin, Pakyaka and Habit Yad, that kind of... <laughs> I think in the American imagination, perhaps when we think of representing dialects in literature, 
the first thing that comes to mind is perhaps Southern dialect or African-American vernacular. I think that's right. It's not a new thing. Dialect representation goes back centuries, perhaps even millennia. And there are definitely precedents in the Greek and Roman tradition. They played with dialects for different reasons in order to be authentic, satirical, humorous, and so on. Yeah. So one of the better known examples from ancient Greece is in the Greek comic playwright Aristophanes at the end of the 5th century BC. In one of his plays called The Acarnians, a character comes from the town of Megara, which is outside Athens, and Megara is really like the Styx. So this guy is kind of a hick and speaks a, a particular kind of dialect. So he's come to Athens to try and do some trade because during the war there's been an embargo. Uh, mm -hmm. So he's, he's carrying a sack and he arrives to an Athenian who set up his own private market. Uh, and he's claiming he's coming to sell pigs, but in fact he's got his, uh, his two daughters in, in the bag. Let me give the first version, which is clearly intended just to give you this meaning uh, and doesn't really represent the dialect at all, but it gives us a sense of, of what's going on. All hail, Athenian market, beloved of the Megarians. By the god of friendship, I've yearned for you as if for a mother. You wretched little kitties of a father in distress, go up for your grub, if you can find it anywhere. Listen now, and lend me your stomachs. Do you want to be sold, or to starve in misery? Okay, so he's addressing his two daughters who are in the sack. Aristophanes is certainly characterizing this individual as a hick. And so Aristophanes uses the, the dialect uh, to give that presentation. And let me show you two other translations that try and translate that dialect into their particular context, one American and one British. Don't tell me which one is which and see if I can tell. I think you'll get them pretty easy. Emporium of Athens, highest hope and deepest desire of all my people... I take this opportunity to extend to y'all a heartfelt Megarian howdy-do. By Hermes, god of profit and loss, I've missed you like my dear old mammy. Let me guess, this is the American one. <laughs> right. <laughs> so he's using dialect here partly for humorous effect? If you're going for hick, right, go southern, apparently is the idea. The British one, to translate this idea of someone, say, less educated and, and kind of a hick, goes for... A Scottish dialect. And to be honest, I cannot understand the English. I would have to look at the Greek to make sense of the English. So let me try and read this. I don't think I can do a Scottish brogue. I'll probably end up sounding like a drunk Australian footballer. But ye peer barnes o a wife o father, spiel up, ye lablins fin a barley bannock. A tin we a yea punch. Wilk yadly leafa, to be selter climid. Yeah, I didn't understand much either. <laughs> You actually touched on uh, these actual concrete examples, some of the strategies and approaches that are discussed in the literature. As someone who is familiar with that literature in sociolinguistics and dialectology, and there is a wealth of information and studies and research on dialects, not a whole lot uh, of that literature that actually crosses over into translation and translation studies, at least in my view. So it's an area, surprisingly enough, that is rather under-theorized in translation. Now, having said that, there are five or six strategies. One, how do you deal with translating dialects? You can translate dialects into another dialect. Try to find an equivalent 
dialect in the target language, a dynamic equivalent. Which right? is, so I guess, with that, what I just did with Aristophanes would be an example of that, I take it. Yes, and of course, you see there are some risks and downsides here we could talk about. But that's one common strategy. The second one would be flatten the dialect, neutralize it, translate it into standard language. There is a famous case, uh, Mark Twain himself, he's on record criticizing the French translator of one of his famous tales, The Jumping Frog, because the translator opted for standard French without apparently capturing the implications of the use of the vernacular in Twain's work. Uh, Twain himself attacked him. I don't like that, by the way. I don't like when writers attack translators. If you don't like a translator, translate the damn thing yourself, you know? <laughs> Sorry, Mark Twain. When you say vernacular, brings up the question of, of say, register versus yes. dialect. It, so, And to go back to the Greco-Roman world, uh, for example, the plays of the comic playwright Plautus in the early 2nd century BC, he's held up as evidence, and some of our only evidence, early evidence, for vulgar Latin, the Umgangssprache. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's a, a lower register um, than you would find, for example, in the plays of Terence, was always held up as an example of Latin purity. Uh, Middle Ages and Renaissance, Terence was really the author you turned to learn correct Latin, whereas Plautus represented this vulgar, common, everyday speech. Is that a different problem than dialect? Yeah, vernacular for me is associated with uh, spoken language, and it, of course it can be strongly related with uh, dialects, whether, whether it be socioeconomic or regional. So dialects are varieties of language conditioned by regional location, uh, level of education, socioeconomic status, class, and so on. Registers, on the other hand, are conditioned by the context of use. So legalese would be a register, you know, governmentalese or teacher talk. I don't think register poses the same problems for translators as dialect does. Moving on, another strategy for translating dialects includes using footnotes and commentary. I think uh, classicists are very fond of the strategy, <laughs> right? Well... I'll say classicists like to use footnotes uh, in commentary, but yeah, I think for a work of fiction that you want it to be lively, they can. The downside, right, is that those can get in the way simply of the the pleasure of reading. Exactly. Actually, I don't remember the person who came up with this analogy, but I like it. She said that leaving the main text when reading a work of literature to go down to the footnotes is like going downstairs to answer the door when you were in the middle of making love. <laughs> uh, what else? There is uh, another strategy which basically relies on orthography, what is called I-dialect, so using non-standard spelling and non-typical punctuation, just to give a feel that something is different. For example, in the, the Flannery O'Connor passage, no ma'am is spelled N-O-M-E, like gnome. So, yeah, you use non-standard spelling, such as merging some words, deleting some letters, consonant doubling, vowel amplifications, knocking off some R's and H's. All these orthographic strategies indicate that a person is not highly educated. I would like to call this orthographic alienation. The question that comes to my mind with this is, orthographical conventions, right? Because in using the Latin alphabet, 
right? right. Using apostrophes, changing spellings, and whatnot can be done, but it seems maybe there's some languages that becomes difficult. Yes. In some languages, that can create quasi-incomprehensible writing. However, some writing systems might have more power in capturing nuances. For example, Japanese, and I know you lived in Japan for a year. The Japanese writing system uses a combination of different writing, kanji, haragana, katakana. So it's, it's fiendishly complex, but that also makes it more flexible in capturing more nuances than the Latin alphabet. Uh, but even in English, I mean, sometimes when I when I read or when I encounter non-standard spellings, it's very challenging to decipher. If you think the point of representing the dialect is a kind of characterization, you can translate that in other ways. Such as? Well, uh, for example, you don't need, in a simple way, you don't need to try and capture every instance of a, an I dialect, for example. So... Uh, if you give enough or find a couple of places to do it, you've perhaps captured enough of the characterization. And that's what most writers do. They, they usually latch on to what is considered more stereotypical features. You don't capture the whole gamut of the dialect. So talk about Southern dialect, for example, a couple of y'alls and I reckon and yonder. <laughs> that's enough to give the feel for, for the character. You know, the point of, of the writer here and the translator, in turn, is not to be totally authentic. It's more about giving flavor, adding color to the speech. You don't want to follow this strategy to the letter or too much because it can create strong alienation or makes the text hard to read. But an easier strategy which I'm sure you encounter a lot in translating from classical languages, is just using meta-commentary. So he said in a rustic dialect, or he said in, insert a name of a region here, commenting on the quality of the speech without actually representing all the dialectal variants of that speech. And that strategy probably is, is very effective in, again, plays, particularly those translated for performance. So in the first version I read of the uh, Aristophanes passage, which was standard English, it did have, I guess, a stage direction in his native dialect. And so I guess that leaves it open to the uh, director and, and uh, actor to represent that in some way through sound. I would say it's a cheap way of representing dialect. It just flags it more than representing it. This raises a question uh, about translation uh, in dialect. Is it impossible to do a literal translation of dialect? What do you mean by literal translation? Say, let's talk about Southern dialect here. If you are translating maybe Mark Twain or Zora Neale Hurston into Italian or, or Arabic or Chinese, how are you going to capture the, the flavor of Southern dialect? Maybe in some context you can find a more or less equivalent region of the South in other cultures. But even that, it's not going to be a perfect match. There's bound to be a mismatch, pragmatic and, and otherwise. Dialects sometimes are considered a part of the impossibility of translation. It's, it's a challenge that can be handled in different ways. But can you be literal if you just follow the form of the text without necessarily worrying too much about the function? In this case, you are literal, but you have lost a lot. You haven't really captured the meaning behind the dialect representation. Right. And it's, so it seems, for example, even syntactical 
idiosyncrasies that represent a dialect, again, staying with the obvious southern uh, version. Um, like I'm fixing to do something. Right, right. right. That's, a, that's a perfect example. One, to translate that literally would be impossible, and then even finding an equivalent may right. require a, a just completely different type of phrasing. Again, it strikes me that there would be many cases where it would be impossible. Like, does every culture have an equivalent of southern dialect and all that that entails? That could create real problems if you don't have really anything equivalent to that. You will hardly ever have an exact equivalent. If you read the literature on translating dialect, for example, you might encounter a discussion of a novel written in a Sicilian dialect or Sicilian language, depending on how you view it. If you tra want to translate it into American English, maybe New Jersey or New York dialect would be a close equivalent. But of course, they, they are very different too. They have different stereotypes and different associations and so on. Another example is, you know, about Cockney uh, dialect in, uh, in, in London, which right. is a working class dialect. Sometimes if you are translating a British novel into Italian, Romanesco, which is a dialect spoken around Rome in central Italy, is usually chosen as an equivalent. Different associations can create oddity as well because, I don't know, let's see Mark Twain, for example. And in fact, there's a case study about translation of Mark Twain into Swedish, A.G. Epstein. She looked at 15 translations of Mark Twain into Swedish. And who knew that there are 15 <laughs> translations? <laughs> that may be the and most remarkable fact. More than 60% of the times, translators just opted for neutralization using the standard dialect. The challenge is, yeah, of course there are the equivalent of a southern dialect in Sweden, but it has different associations. The readers of the Swedish text also know that the text is set in, in America in the 19th century. So it would be odd if the characters spoke a southern Swedish dialect, create a, a mismatch or dissonance. And neutralization might seem like giving up as a translator. Like, I'm not even going to, to try and capture all this nuance to give a dynamic equivalent but it may be the best version because you're not misleading to use your example of sicily and new jersey how much is to set up an equation is new jersey to standard american english as sicily is to a standard italian right with all right. those associations that's that's not really analogy necessarily and in fact maybe even more misleading than a neutralization. True. When all else have been tried and you cannot find a satisfactory solution, perhaps, like everything in translation, it's a kind of compromise. There is an approach, I haven't mentioned that yet, and I don't know if, if we can call it an approach, it's more like an aspiration. When translating dialects to forego the regional association, because you cannot really capture that in another language exactly the same way. Uh, there is something called the supra-regional colloquial language. Where basically, you try to find an equivalent in the target language that is not associated with any particular region in the country. A way of speaking that render rusticity or lack of education, find some markers that can indicate that. But these markers are not necessarily associated with any specific part of the country you are translating to. Say, if you are translating into Spanish, you don't want to find a, an Andalusian variety or a northern variety. You want to find a variety that is more or less has a social function, 
without being a geographical dialect. Do most languages have such super-regional colloquialism? Not necessarily. Sometimes you, you as a translator have to make it up. You know, you find ways of reflecting relaxed speech or non-educated speech without necessarily latching on to any particular syntactic or phonological variance that is associated with any particular dialect. When you said the translator to make it up, this raises an interesting question, right? That mm -hmm. I could see how a translator might invent word forms or expressions that might be recognized uh, as colloquial or of a certain register, even though they don't actually exist as of yet. I mentioned Mark Twain's uh, Huckleberry Finn and Wuthering Heights, Emily Pronte's famous classic. There is a case study, again, most of the research on dialects and translations are more case studies based. Uh, this person, Sanchez, I think, she looked at 40 published Spanish translations of Wuthering Heights. There is a character there, the housekeeper, she speaks in a Yorkshire dialect. In this study, the translation of Wuthering Heights into Spanish, none of the of the translations attempted to capture this local flavor represented by the speech of the housekeeper. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, so can we say that all of them failed? No. They individually and independently came to the consensus that that's the best, best possible option uh, available in this case. And that may be, you earlier said, you know, all translation is a compromise, and I might push that uh, further and say, you know, all translation is failure by necessity. That's what it is. And it can be a beautiful type of failure. And one of my sayings about translation is that it's a constant negotiation of loss. What exactly are you going to choose to lose? Um, but you see, you are using that negative language, loss and failure. I don't know. That's not necessarily the only way to talk about translation. Loss and failure, I understand that the negative connotations of that, but I think it's accurate. I do. And I think coming to terms with that doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. You know, to speak in terms of translation as successful, mm -hmm. you might say, what does that mean? And in a way, the problem of dialect highlights this. It's like an extreme case where it really reveals uh, all the fundamental problems of translation. How does one successfully translate dialect. And it seems to me, mostly one doesn't. You have to choose your method of failure. You have to choose. How about we say loss. you have to choose your method of coping with a challenge? I don't want necessarily to cast this as failure. Why not? Uh, it's because you are trying to recreate the text and you haven't necessarily failed in doing something that can sometimes be impossible. I don't even like to talk about it as a form of success. It's There are degrees hmm. of felicity. Definitely, subjectivity plays a major role uh, and the experience of the translator and the context, the nature of the text, and so on. If I can appropriate your words, that, that we should not speak uh, of translation in terms of success or failure, even though we commonly do may be problematic. And again, dialect seems to, to point why that's the case. Yeah, it, it is definitely a, a difficult uh, position to be in when you are faced with dialects. And you can be attacked for finding a strategy. You can be attacked for 
ignoring the dialectal variants and choosing the standard language instead. You know, beyond success and failure and gain and loss, as was almost everything in translation. It's a failure. It is, it, <laughs> it's an art, I was going to say. <laughs> it's not an exact science. There is not always one correct way of doing things. We make choices from a number of available strategies. And each choice is conditioned by the specificities of the context and what sometimes works in one situation could be completely inappropriate in another situation. And on that indeterminate note, we end our episode today. Thank you all for listening and see you next time. This has been On Translation. Visit us at ontranslation.org and follow the podcast at iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play.